Please take your Bibles and turn to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum 3. We're going to be finishing out our study that we began way back in January of this little Old Testament prophetic book, one of the minor prophets. If you recall, really the whole theme of this book is a message of judgment. And I was thinking about this, and, and um, if, you've, if you've read this, um, you know that it is a message of judgment, and it's a continuation of, of the whole theme of the book. And judgment is something that makes us uncomfortable. I was thinking about this, and if I were to leave here today, and, or maybe tomorrow, uh, instead of going about what my regular activities might be, if I were to put on some comfortable summertime clothes and don a sandwich board that said, Judgment is coming, repent and believe in Christ, and stand at the corner of uh, Pin Oak and Kingsland, um, I think it would, I, mostly, it would be ignored by most people, because judgment is uncomfortable. People like to live their lives. People want to do what they want to do. But this is God's Word. We believe that God's Word is inspired, and as I considered this, I I was reminded by a friend of mine as I was discussing with him about how to preach this third chapter that this is God's Word. There's a reason why this message is here, and it is to serve as a warning for us. So my prayer is is that we will be instructed by God's Word. We see in this passage that God is just, and that's a, a simple and true way of titling this text. God is just. And those that disregard His law, His word, and His mercy will face His wrath. And we see in this chapter three divisions that we'll use as headings for um, this message. One is a declaration of justice. Secondly, the defeat of Thebes as Nahum compares Assyria to the Egyptian city of Thebes. And lastly, we'll see the destruction of God's enemies. So let us pray and then we'll read this text. Let us bow. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And even these passages that make us uncomfortable are necessary. You have inspired your word. It is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, I pray that it would carve and cut where it needs to this morning. Lord, that we as your church would be purified. And that those that sit under the hearing of your word this morning that do not know you, would come to Christ in whom there is mercy and forgiveness. Bless the proclamation of your word for your glory in the building of your church and the saving of sinners, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Nahum 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, Flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. For all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And will lift up your skirts over your face, and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. 
And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the, and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water from the siege for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourself like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. As you can see from this text, and as you recall, hopefully from chapter 2 as we read that, there is very vivid language used to describe this battle. As one commentator pointed out, the beauty of the language contrasts with the necessary harshness of the message that judgment is coming upon God's enemies, upon this brutal, tyrannical government of Assyria. Remember that Nahum's prophecy was given before the fall of Assyria. It was likely given in around 630, some commentators think, 630 BC, but it was given when Assyria was really at the top of their power, the top of their game. They were the superpower of the known world. It was, if it was at that time, it was during the reign of Ashurbanipal, who was one of the, really the last great ruler of the nation of Assyria. And they had captured Thebes, they had captured Elam, they had captured all these important cities. They were at the top of their game. They brought destruction and havoc across the Middle East. And they were enjoying the profits and the power and the prestige that came with that government, with the fear that they brought upon everybody else. And into that environment, into that culture, into that pride and arrogance, Nahum speaks this word of judgment from the Lord. And he uses this vivid language as though he's witnessing this battle firsthand. It's almost like he is furiously taking notes as the battle's taking place, even though 
He spoke at least a couple decades before the fall of Nineveh. And we learn from that that God's word is sure and that his judgment is coming. What God says he will do, his word is as sure in advance as it is after the fact of the completion of that word. The text begins with a word that's common to the prophets. That is the word woe. The word woe is a, is a type of a lament or a proclamation of judgment. That is certainly what it is in this text, that judgment is coming upon Nineveh. And it lists the sins of Nineveh. We've talked about them. And, and in just a few words, very tight and concise language there in verse 1, it tells us some of their woes. They were a bloody city. They were full of lies and plunder. There was no end to their prey. It was, a, it was a rain that was marked by bloodshed and brutality. Archaeologists have uncovered a depiction of the king and queen of Assyria enjoying a feast celebrating their victory over the king of Elam. And in the tree beside the table where they're eating is the severed head of that king. They were a brutal, bloody group of people. Not only were they marked by violence and brutality, they were marked by deception. The text says they're full of lies. We read in 2 Kings that an Assyrian general tried to trick the people of Israel into making peace with them, saying they they could dwell in Assyria and they promised them a good life. We know that was a lie because they never did that for their people. They were also full of greed as they plundered their enemies. The second verse picks up with that vivid language, talking about the the battle that will spell the end of this regime. It will occur with cracking whips and galloping horses and glittering spear and hosts of slain. We read in the book of Jonah that Nineveh had about 120,000 people. It seems that they, from verses we just read and, and later in this chapter, that it had increased They increased their merchants. They increased their wealth through plundering these other nations. And basically, when God brought judgment upon them, they all died. So the idea of heaps of corpses and dead bodies without end is certainly understandable. It's right that we want nothing to do with such a civilization. We take comfort, I take comfort in knowing that I am far removed from the Assyrians. They lived over 2,500 years ago. They lived on the other side of the world. We rightly look upon them with disdain. We think, well, they lack the sensibilities of those of us in the modern age. We see that they killed for convenience and even for sport. They had very little regard for life, especially the lives of their enemies. And even though they had the law of God written upon their hearts, and they had been given the opportunity, and many of them had repented about a hundred years earlier. We read about that clearly in the book of Jonah, that he preached a message of salvation to the Ninevites, those in that culture, and they repented. And now we see that God is judging them because they forsook that repentance. And when they had turned their back on their sins, now they have turned their back, turned their face fully back to their sin. And God is judging them. They had disregarded the mercy of God. 
But lest we think that we are that much better than them, we cannot help but recognize that we in this nation live in a culture of death. Consider that in the 45 years since the Roe versus Wade decision, that there have been over 54 million abortions in the United States. Think of the countless homicides and the many people in our nation that have no regard for life and the preciousness of life. Our God is a God of life. But yet we live in a culture of death and have disregarded His law. How many in the church honestly excuse their own anger, which Jesus condemned as violating the sixth commandment? God is the judge of all those who fail to preserve life. May we as God's people stand for life in every way and in every chance we can. Verses 4 to 6 goes on with a fitting judgment. It describes an uncomfortable scenario where God repeats the announcement of those chilling words from chapter 2 where He says that God is against them. In more vivid language of rebuke and judgment, we learn why God is against this this people. Not only were they marked by brutality and greed and deception, they were marked by harlotry and sexual promiscuity. This sin was literal as well as figurative. Prostitution was a part of their worship, their idolatrous worship, and there was political prostitution as well. They were known to sell their military might and power to, um, for weaker nations. We rightly find the words of verses 5 and 6 as as very uncomfortable as God talks about the judgment that He will bring upon them. One commentator says, speaks of the necessity of this language, was to jar the Assyrians in their complacency. He said, by coarse, insulting language, the Holy Spirit through the prophet tears away these pretenses and lays bare the moral degradation of the inner recesses of the heart. Assyria was grossly wicked. And the prophet uses this language of rebuke and judgment that reflects that wickedness. Assyria will face judgment fitting of her sins, just as the prostitute preys upon her victims, entrapping and destroying them. God is bringing similar judgment upon her, upon Assyria. But unlike the prostitute who typically works in secret, God will expose Nineveh to open shame. He goes on in this next section in talking about the defeat of Thebes in Egypt. Again, the prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is seeking to jar these Assyrians and help them understand that they will face God's judgment. He makes a comparison and says, look at Thebes. Thebes who had all these advantages. What advantages did she have? Well, she had natural advantages in that she had um, protection. She had water around her. her um, the text says that um, with her rampart, a sea, and water her wall, she had natural fortifications of the river Nile there. And it should have called to mind in the, in the, in the ears and the minds of the Assyrians, the generals and the soldiers that actually brought that campaign against Thebes because they, after sailing up river 400 miles, they found these natural um, fortifications, stone uh, structures weighing over 300 tons apiece, this place of civilization, but yet it fell. 
It was also defeated. Thebes was defeated despite its allies. Verse 9 tells us that Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. These other Egyptian nations were her allies. Cush is ancient Ethiopia and, and now modern Sudan. Thebes was destroyed in 663 at the hands of, of this Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. And the irony is that Nahum is recalling this battle and victory of the Assyrians and comparing Nineveh to Thebes and says, Look, this place had these fortifications, yet they fell at your own hands. Are you better than them? Why shouldn't Assyria think that they can stand when another city of power and influence and fortification had fallen before them? They too will fall. God will bring defeat to Nineveh as well. Just as Assyria sent those captives into exile, so will the Assyrians be driven into hiding and ultimately to their death. Like a drunken man who falls and finds it easier to crawl under a table rather than rising and walking, so Assyria will cower before her enemies. And the defeat of Assyria at the hands of the Babylonians and the Medes proved the prophet true. The largest defeat was in 612, was the major battle. Some then fled and tried to establish another civilization at Haran, and then they fell in 610. And the last remaining, uh, historians tell us, the last remaining Assyrians fell at the Battle of Carchemish in 605. What Nahum spoke proved true. Nineveh had appeared invincible, yet her fortresses were to become as weak and fragile as thin dried stems holding a ripe fig. Her troops would be weak, her cities left unprotected and vulnerable. This was the fate of wicked Assyria. We like to compare, don't we? If you ask people, if you ask people that are unchurched, you know, about their souls, typically the response people give is, I'm pretty good. And the reason they say they're pretty good is because they're comparing themselves with somebody else who is a little bit worse than they, maybe a lot worse. We all like to look good, don't we? Again, we like to remove ourselves from such an evil empire. But how often do we think of ourselves better than we should? Assyria thought she was invincible and better than Thebes. And how often do we, even inside the church, justify our own sins thinking, oh, they're just little sins, and by the way, I'm not as bad as so-and-so over here. A man may say, well, yeah, I yelled at my wife, but she just knows how to push my buttons. Plus, at least I'm not physically abusive like my father. Or a woman may say, well, I may be a bit envious, but at least I'm not as deep in debt as my friend over here. We excuse little sins, and we do that by comparison. But what is the standard to which we should measure ourselves? It's God's standard. And what is God's standard? It is extremely high. Jesus said in the closing words of Matthew 5, he says, Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Leviticus, and it's repeated in the New Testament, says, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Holiness perfection. That's the standard. We have no way to compare ourselves. We should never compare ourselves with each other. As Pastor Greco said last week in his study of Romans 3, we must never substitute our own standards for God's standards. Finally, we see in this text 
the destruction of God's enemies. Beginning with verse 14, we see that Nahum is, is urging the Assyrians to preparation. But it's really a mockery of this arrogant city because no matter how much mortar they mix or how many bricks they make to reinforce the walls, the walls will come down. A serious judgment and a serious fate was really sealed because they had rejected God's mercy for them. This mockery is not a mockery of all human effort. But it is to show that any effort and all effort to escape the judgment of God in ourselves is pointless. Nahum reminds Nineveh over and over in this book that judgment is coming. It is inevitable. The day of mercy has passed and God's justice is coming. His judgment is coming upon them. He reminds them of the futility of the preparation. That no matter how they strengthen their forts, the fire will devour them. The sword will cut them off. They will be consumed as though a horde of locusts had stripped them bare. Remember the locust in the eighth plague in uh, the book of Exodus as God judged the Egyptians for their failure to let the people go from slavery. And the text there in, in Exodus tells us that the locusts ate every green thing. Everything that was left from the previous plagues, the locusts stripped bare. And Nahum uses this language to help us understand the magnitude of the defeat that Assyria faces. It was not that the the hordes of locusts would be the thing that defeated them, but the Babylonians um, would come in and defeat them in a similar way. We see that destruction is final. We've already mentioned this, that in a short time... In a very short time, Nineveh was no more. The Assyrian people were completely wiped out. And really, it's only been in recent history that any remnants of this civilization have been found. And the battle would also be marked by a mass exodus of the ruling class of Nineveh. Verses 16 and 17 uses that metaphor of the locust again, but in a different way. If you recall, and it's just a few lines in the book of Exodus... It talks about that when the locusts had done their damage, that God caused a great wind to blow them out to sea. And in a matter of of a few hours, the locusts were gone. And what he's saying here, what what Nahum is saying here, is that those wealthy merchants, those people that should be the leaders and the protectors of the community in Nineveh are going to flee. They're going to get out of town in fear. And they're going to disappear like a horde of locusts that that disappears after they've done their damage. And then we see the finality of defeat in the last two verses. Here the rebuke and prophecy are turned directly at the king himself. The prophet chides him that his shepherds are asleep and his noble noble slumber. Those who should have been protecting the people are gone. They're not there. They're not doing their job. The people are scattered and no one is there to gather and protect them. And then in a final prophetic blow, he says that the king's wound is grievous and there would be no relief to his pain. Not only will he die a painful, agonizing death, but people will rejoice at the news of his death. 
The final sentence of the book shows us why so many would rejoice at the king's death. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The one that had brutalized nation upon nation in that region, people would rejoice knowing that that man had died, that king had died, that that civilization was going to be no more because of the violence they had brought. This, of course, was a relief to the people of God. Remember, it was the Assyrians that destroyed northern Israel and took them into exile and basically obliterated the northern ten tribes. Judah lived in fear of Assyria at this time. It was a relief to the people of God. The defeat of such a tyrant signaled relief and was going to be met by rejoicing by the nations around them. Now, as Christians, we understand why they would rejoice. But we also recognize that every man is made in God's image. And every one of us is going to face the judgment seat of God and give account for their life. I remember well the Sunday morning worship services at our PCA church in Kansas on December 30, I'm sorry, on May 31st, 2009. I can't tell you what the preacher preached about, but at the end of that service, he received a note and he announced to the congregation that Dr. George Tiller, the renowned abortionist, had been shot and killed in the foyer of his church just a few miles away from where we were worshiping that morning. I admit I was at first glad to think that that man who had killed so many babies, thousands of babies, and many late-term abortions done at his hands, and I was glad that that was over, that he would no longer do that. But as our pastor reminded us that Dr. Tiller would now face the judgment of an almighty, holy God, I can't tell you the fear that that wrought in me And it should for all of us as we recognize that we all will face a righteous and a holy judge. Dr. Tiller had ignored God, and now God was his judge. Saints of God, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you are here outside of Christ, come to him. Come to him for safety. Outside of Christ, we have nothing on which to stand. Our righteousness is flimsy. It will not hold us up. I think about um, apocalyptic movies and how people like them, I think, because what do you see in, in most apocalyptic movies? You see the end of the world. You see the end of civilization as we know it. And often there's some evil that's lurking about, whether it's zombies or whatever it is that's, that's there to, to capture and consume the last remaining individual or few remaining individuals that live on earth. The reason we like them, I think, is because typically the story in them is that they find out, that remaining individual or group of individuals finds out that weak link in the, in the evil that's lurking about and gets victory over them. We love that. We love to see the power of ingenuity. But I'm here to tell you, folks, that in the final apocalypse, in the final judgment, your own ingenuity will do nothing for you. You have nothing on which to stand. It will do you no good on the day of judgment. 
So come to Christ. As we reflect upon this this message of, of clear judgment here upon the Assyrians, we can't help but think about the final judgment and the way Christ described hell. Jesus, who came to provide a way of salvation, also warned us about hell and the reality of hell. He says the fire there is not quenched. The worm does not die. It is a place of eternal, unending torment for those who reject God. Our God is just and perfectly righteous and holy, and heaven is reserved for those that are like Him. Yet none of us are. We are all sinners, and we are bound for hell. Hell is for those who are not. And that's all of us apart from Christ. We are born in sin. We have inherited that sinful nature from Adam. Our hearts are sinful, and the outworking of that sinful nature is the sinful actions that we commit. The judgment upon Assyria could be said about us. There is futility in seeking our own remedy for sin. God's judgment, His punishment for sin is full and it is final. Yet we could add a fourth F to this list, and that is that the full payment for sin has been made. Christ has taken upon Himself the full penalty of our sins. Yes, there must be justice brought upon sin, but for His own, Christ bore that penalty. He drank the full cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs, down to the last drop, to provide a way of salvation for you and for me. So I urge you again, if you don't know Him today, come to Christ. If you look at your life and see that you're living only for yourself and only to promote yourself at the expense of others, come to Him. Repent. Trust in Him fully. He has satisfied the justice of a holy God. Come to Christ and find salvation. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And thank You, O God, that You are just and right and that You will set everything right one day. You will judge all the sin and wickedness of this earth. Lord, I pray that in justice, that there would be mercy. Lord, I pray that those that are here this morning that may have their back turned to You, O God, would recognize that they are headed for an eternity in hell if they do not turn and repent. Lord God, May Christ be set forth glorious and beautiful in His atoning work this morning. We praise You for the offer of salvation that still stands for those that will repent and believe and come to Christ. Lord, we praise You for Your Word. and We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.